Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor. On this podcast, we primarily do deep dives into shows that we're currently watching, and I also introduce my friends to new movies, TV shows, music that I think they might enjoy, and then we discuss them in detail. Just this very week, we wrapped up our previous series with the conclusion of HBO's House of the Dragon, as well as Hulu's The Patient. Both shows coincidentally wrapped up this week, as I said, and do check our catalog for those shows if you are watching them or catching up on them now. In today's episode, I will be recapping and commenting on the most recent episode of Amazon Prime's The Peripheral, a show that in its early going does seem to be finding an audience. So maybe a good idea for Amazon to have piggybacked this directly onto the success of their Lord of the Rings show. And I will also be reviewing the new anthology, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, available on Netflix, which had an interesting release pattern for Netflix. They did not drop all the episodes at once. They actually dropped two episodes per day over the course of the week. And once again, early indications is that it worked. It seemed to have built up ahead of steam over the course of the week. And I'll be telling you my opinion of the overall shape of that anthology. And more importantly, which episodes you can skip, because there are episodes you could definitely skip there, but there are some episodes in that anthology series that are very, very strong. I'll be doing the hosting duties solo today. Given the Halloween weekend, it was a little inconvenient to coordinate any recording with anybody else, but I will definitely be having conversations with my sister later this week, getting her feedback on the peripheral and anything else she's been watching. I know she's been watching some of these spooky season shows. And of course, check back on Monday, where I will be discussing with Sona the first two, I believe there'll be two episodes of The White Lotus, another show we'll be covering here week to week, which begins on Sunday night. And we should have our reaction episode published on Monday. Halloween could throw a wrench into the works, but that remains to be seen. Make sure you subscribe so you know when all those episodes become available. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can contact us at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the show, one, Give us a review or a five-star rating on whatever platform you happen to be listening to us. Share our episodes via your social media or just recommend us to your friends and family, anybody else who may be watching these same shows. Or look through our back catalog and find other series that you may be interested in catching up on or listening to our commentary on. Some shows that are coming back in the spring that you may want to catch up on ahead of time. Yellow Jackets from Showtime. Succession from HBO, which just dropped a trailer this week with... The House of the Dragon finale. And if you are catching up on some scary movies for Halloween, just a reminder that we have some content in the backlog that you might want to check out. First of all, Barbarian, a very entertaining, very funny oftentimes, and still scary horror film, has just become available on HBO Max, became a very strong performer, a surprise hit earlier this fall, and now is available to stream conveniently on HBO Max. And we have a full review and spoiler discussion, a very funny one, in our backlog. So look for that episode and I'll include a link to it in the show notes. We are covering the patient in that episode. So you may have to jump ahead to about the midpoint of that episode. If you don't want to hear our conversation about the patient. Also, I have a full spoiler review of the Halloween movie, Halloween ends. So if you did see that movie and want to listen to my commentary, or if you did not see that movie and just want to know what happens in it, listen to that as well. Just some suggestions for you. There's over 100 episodes back there, so probably something you can find that you might enjoy. With that out of the way, let's get into the peripheral. Episode 3, an episode called Haptic Drift. 
as I've said previously on this podcast, it's usually pretty important to think about what an episode of a series is called. It gives you a clue as to what the priority for the writer and other creators of the show are trying to convey. And I forgot to do that with last week's episode. We were covering two very long episodes, so forgive me for that. But I definitely wanted to bring up the fact that episode two of this series is called Empathy Bonus. The reason it's called Empathy Bonus is that when Flynn is in the World War II video game recreation early in the first episode, she releases these virtual sheep from their enclosure, which is what allows her to find her escape for her team. And then late in episode two, her brother, Burton, is telling her that you got lucky when you released those sheep and found that escape route. There is no empathy bonus in the real world. That's his perspective. But she mentions, what if you wouldn't have seen it because you lack that empathy? So although undeveloped at this moment, I do think that they are planting a seed here in the show that Flynn has been plucked out of the past to be the hero of the future by whoever the powers that be are, probably Alita at this point, because maybe empathy is her secret power. So an interesting thematic point being brought up here by the show that I'm very interested in philosophically and has not yet been fully formulated, but I'm giving the show the benefit of the doubt that it will be able to develop these ideas. And even before I start breaking down this current episode, I would say that in general, I feel kind of like the worst seasons of Battlestar Galactica at this point, or maybe I should say the Battlestar Galactica spin-off Caprica, where there are some very fascinating ideas being presented, but never really developed in a satisfactory way. Now, I'm saying this with three, we're three episodes in, so there is plenty of time to correct this. I'm just giving you my current moment opinion of what's happening. And I am kind of jumping ahead with some of the broader themes of this show, which continue to develop in this particular episode. Episode three, which by the way, is called Haptic Drift. Another theme that's being created here, we'll discover over the course of this episode that Burton talks about something called haptic drift, which once again is a interesting philosophical question when we think about the future of AI and virtual worlds. What happens when you are merged with a machine or merged with another conscience? Will there be what is called here haptic drift, which is the idea that the artificial sensation of merger that the haptics are giving you, do you confuse that with real emotion? And then it makes you ask questions about what is real emotion anyway. Once again, very big ideas that this show isn't quite ready to deal with, but I'm still glad that they introduced these large topics. Even if some of this philosophy gets lost in the bang, bang, shoot 'em ups <laughs> from moment to moment on the show. All right. With some of that table setting out of the way, this episode, Haptic Drift, is directed by Ulrich Riley. Unlike last week's episodes directed by Vincenzo Natalie, I believe this is more of a workman-like episodic TV director based on his resume. And there's nothing wrong with people like this. As a matter of fact, this is going to be some of the context I'll set for the conversation about the anthology we'll cover later in this episode. It's how much of a filmmaker's persona bleeds out in these individual episodes and how much of it is them just doing the best to support the overall project of the show. And in my opinion, I think this is more of the latter, just somebody continuing the tone, the visual style, the performances, and he will be directing next week's episode as well. The episode begins with a flashback in which Pickett, the town crime lord, apparently is doing some work for a biker gang or maybe a potentially competing gang that seems to be rolling into town. And his front is running a car dealership. 
and I believe his nephew, Jasper, works here. Maybe just a summer job. He's washing the cars. And apparently he's been preparing these cars for this gang of bikers slash criminals. He tells them he's getting out of the drug business. And he's customized these cars to make them bulletproof. Here's the keys. Here's everything you need. He's a man of God now. This is all facetious, of course. And he tells them to, why don't they take the cars out for a whirl? Test them out. They all get into the cars all at the same time. Not a single one stays outside for some kind of security. They don't just peer inside the car or whatever. They all get inside and slam those doors shut. And of course, this is all a trap. Those cars, they're locked now. They're going to get hot. Don't leave your pets or children, God forbid, inside your car on a hot day. And in this case, don't leave your entire gang locked in their car either. And we discover a few things here about Pickett. Not only is he ruthless, not only will he completely exterminate anyone he sees as a threat, He's also sadistic. He wants them to suffer. He doesn't want to just kill them quickly. He wants them to suffer. He even tells Jasper to rinse the cars off with the water just to make them remember just how refreshing that water would be if they could just escape the car. They can't even shoot their way out. The car's been made to be bulletproof. Personally, I think I would find a way out of this car. I mean, you could take the doors apart. You know, you do have at least an hour probably by the time the car gets hot enough to kill you. So there's probably a way you can get out of there. But for the purposes of this show, they don't. And all those crucifixes he had lined up, supposedly because of his religious reform, we discover later on that he has strung up all these dead folks, I guess as a warning that no other gangs need apply. This town already has its gang, thank you very much. I'm sure this is to tell us that this is the method that Pickett has used to gain control of the town, and of course to keep control of it as well. Next we see present tense Pickett going for a skinny dip and having a conversation with his wife. She's fully aware of his criminal activities, and she gives him some very pragmatic advice. Keep the money and do nothing, and you still made two and a half million dollars. But you may ask the question, well, why is someone so interested in these folks at all? So before you take any action, hey, you already got the money, and we have an in. Jasper, married to Flynn's best friend, could be a way to get some feelers into what's happening with this family, and why are these people so dead set on killing them off? Next, we catch up with Flynn and Burton. First, Flynn gets to be a little upset about Burton spending some of that money that's been rolling in. They've bought the 3D printing shop where she works, and he's driving a new Jeep, but it's just a rental. He hasn't bought it yet. She does not like him splashing money around. It's going to raise questions. And then on the ride home, it's Burton's turn to be annoyed with Flynn because she tells him that she told her best friend about what's been happening. She asks the right questions when she hears this story, being like, are you sure this is for real? Are you convinced? So at least to her credit, she didn't just buy this hook, line, and sinker, although she's trying to be a good friend and supporting her. But Burton's annoyed because she told somebody outside their circle of friends. She does throw in his face, legitimately, that his friends know about it too, although they were drawn into it inadvertently. And she doesn't have that same circle of friends. She's the only one, her friend is the only one she can confide in. And he reminds her again, who is she married to? She's married to Jasper. And Jasper works for Pickett. Also, we see something that was introduced in last week's episode, forgot to mention once again there as well, that Flynn is starting to have some kind of adverse reaction to wearing the headgear or entering those peripheral bodies in the future. And it's expressing itself by these cramps she's getting in her hands. Burton susses it out right away that it's her adapting to wearing the headgear as he had similar problems with the haptics. And she tries to minimize it. Also, I forgot to mention here that they've given Connor a job there at the 3D print shop now. And we have to hear a whole bunch of puns related to his 
triple amputation. Head on in. Put your best foot forward. <laughs> now you're just being an asshole. I'm serious, dude. I'd give an arm and a leg for a rig like uh, this. <laughs> you cut me deep. I mean it. You got a leg up on all of us. Hands down. This one's for you. Always good comedy material. Basically all the puns. I mean, save some for later. We'd have to knock them all out in a 10 second period of time. In the future, we see Wilf and his benefactor, this Russian gangster, I believe, or at least comes from a Russian criminal background, a klept, as they call them here, I guess for kleptomaniac. And they tease more of Wilf's backstory, something that he's ashamed of. And this character, Lev, tells him, you should not be ashamed of that history. It's actually the reason we hired you in the first place. We do find out more about Wilf's backstory. We discover that he was adopted at the same time with Alita herself. We still don't know details of their backstory, but they were street children, it appears to be, after this jackpot incident, which I guess I'm bringing up for the first time. There's some kind of apocalyptic event in the future called the jackpot, and relatively few people survived it, and I guess that orphaned a lot of children. And based on the conversation we hear here, the government had reached out to wealthier families and asked them to adopt these orphaned children. And in a flashback episode, we see Alita being adopted. Alita, by the way, looking like the young version of her peripheral all the way in episode one, and explains some of her conversation with Wilf, Wilfred, originally called Wolf Gang. So now we know what the Wilf, Wolf name discrepancy are. But when she's talked about having no shoes and walking around and that experience they had together, I actually thought that might have been in the war, but now especially seeing that she has chosen to use the, the younger version of her body, perhaps to play on his heartstrings, reminding him of their youth together. She refuses to be adopted without him, so the family adopts both of them. And in the present moment of the show, 2099 London, in this case, we see Wilf, I'll, go, I'll call him Wilf for now, go and visit his mom, his adoptive mom, and ask her, has she seen Alita recently? To which she says she did run into her randomly in public. And when she asked her where she was staying, she left her a riddle, where snow last fell in London. And at the moment, Wilf cannot solve this riddle. Apparently, Alita likes riddles. Importantly, I skipped this, but earlier in the episode, Flynn has momentarily gone back into the peripheral to meet with Wilf and Lev. And they warned her, they asked her, do you know about Corbell Pickett? I believe his first name is. Do you know about Pickett? And she goes, yeah, I know who he is. And they say there's a large, large increase in the amount of internet traffic from his house about you. Basically, he's researching your family, and we think someone already put a hit on you, but maybe someone has reached out directly to him. And with this warning, she has to jump out of her body, although she does plan to go on this mission they have planned for her. And she goes back to warn Burton and his friends about this potential risk that's coming their way. When she does finally return, she emerges in a cab with Wilf, and her plan here is just to drive around London and see if anything is familiar to her, retracing her steps from the club to see if she can remember where this building might be. They actually eventually get out on foot, and none of this is very fruitful, although it does allow us to see a few things here. We get to see that there is technology where this peripheral and via an implant in the humans as well, they can do kind of a mind meld. This is where the whole concept of potentially haptic drift confusing you being introduced. A couple of funny things happen here. One is that apparently her behavior within the peripheral is not random enough to align with predicted physical movements of a program peripheral, which raises the alarm of the local police, which now are these androids. I like how the 
situation gets diffused by Wolf trying to explain, well, this was an unexpected visitation by this client he has in Canada. And apparently whenever someone jumps into a peripheral, you have to get like a visa for that. And he has not. So at this point, they want to investigate the peripheral, which of course could blow the lid off of this whole entire scheme they have going on. And if they just pull Flynn out quickly, it just raises more suspicions. So he diffuses the situation by feigning some kind of love interest in this woman inside of the peripheral, which is this for real? Like, is he actually falling for Flynn? It seems like he doesn't know enough about her, but then again, he's kind of been cyber stalking her. So possibly, and he does get to look at her empty vessel, which is kind of creepy when you think about that. So he might have a physical attraction to her form, even when it's empty. <laughs> All of this is kind of creepy when you, you know, think about it, but whether this is real or not, she's unsure too. And they kiss actually. And I do find by find this very funny. This is like something straight out of spy film. In spy movies, oftentimes you feign like a couple's spat to get the police off of you. I like the fact that this works even with AI, the, as if this robot android is kind of uncomfortable with the situation. It's like, okay, I see. This is kind of personal. Sorry to intrude. <laughs> but apparently it works. And she gets us to escape and they take the peripheral back home with them. Back in 2033, Burton is meeting with Pickett, and he basically lays it all out on the line. I know you've been looking into us. I don't want you to snoop anymore. I don't know what they're paying you. But the last guys they sent our way, who are all dead, by the way, got paid $9 million. So look, I have a carrot and a stick. Here's the carrot. I'm going to give you $200,000 a week. Now, this will be way more than $10 million over the course of months. So it seems like a good deal to Pickett to take this payoff. So Pickett says, well, what was the stick? Just curious. And it turns out, pretty good acting here by Jack Rayner. I was at Quantico, walked into a bar, saw a guy sitting on a stool, and I just blacked out. Gone. When I came to, I was standing over that guy. Found that I'd beaten him about a half inch high of death. I'd never even seen him before, but a sergeant in my unit he got jumped by that motherfucker when he was 16 years old. And because of the haptics, I had that in me. Along with a visceral imperative to destroy that son of a bitch. Without even knowing why. If anything happens to me or my sister, and you're behind it, you ought to have your affairs in order. Because I'm not just me now. I'm all the men I served with. Burton had basically had his own haptic drift. He had inherited the emotions of his compatriot. And he warns Pickett that you may kill me, but what are the consequences of all those men that I fought alongside, all targeting you at the same time? Pickett doesn't take very nicely to being threatened, but there's one more display of force. Burton points at his glass of beer, and it's immediately shattered by a bullet. Because it turns out he has snipers in the woods. And he warns Pickett, the next one is in your head which leads them to shaking hands and agreeing to this deal. For the moment, at least. Pickett is temporarily subdued. As they shake hands from inside the bar, we see Sheriff Constantine sees this, and his expression is like, what? What's happening over there? Showed up at their house, suspicious invisible cars, not brought up again this week, by the way. And now, Burton and Pickett shaking hands. Something's going on. His snooping might lead to his death. That remains to be seen. Back in 2099, 
or I guess forward in 2099, we see Dr. Newland, who is this very posh, British, bald, stylish woman, very much feels like a female version of an old school James Bond villain. Sidebar, the Nolan brothers are fascinated with James Bond in general, and I guess spy films also, and film noir. You could say that almost every single Christopher Nolan film is a film noir, like The Dark Knight and Memento, just to name two. But you look at something like Inception, and it's funny that all these fantasy worlds in Inception are all basically action sequences from old school James Bond movies. And if you think about that spy slash Bond slash gadgety world, all the Jonathan Nolan properties share a lot of that DNA also. So back to this story, we still don't know why Dr. Newland wants Flynn dead. I was originally speculating that the download went into Flynn's body. And is that cramping that Flynn is experiencing, is that because of the download? Does she actually have the information inside of her and nobody yet knows this? Maybe Alita does. Dr. Newland, Newland? Hmm. So she even threatens Daniel for not having killed Flynn and maybe for letting the information be stolen in the first place. Newland is trying to find out how Alita found out about the computer and how to hack it. And apparently she picks out this woman, Grace, who was friends with Alita. She's invited her out to her bee farm to have some tea and have a conversation. It turns out Grace had told her just a little bit of information, but this is enough for Newland to decide that she needs to be exterminated, exterminated by bee sting. Apparently something in the tea has made her incredibly attractive to the bees and the bees swarm on her. Once again, no one can kill in simple ways on this show, whether you boil somebody in their car or sting them to death with a swarm of bees. Once again, the analogy to, to James Bond villainy. As we approach the end of the episode, we see that Jasper, oh, Jasper, does not take his wife's advice. He wants some of that money. So that first $200,000 payment, and he just has to ask too many questions about it. When he delivers the money to Corbell, Corbell even throws him a stack of cash and then makes a very good point. Never accept a stack of cash from a serial killer until you know what he wants in return. Jasper tries to throw it back at him, but it's like, no, 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 too late. And basically what he wants him to do is to spy on Flynn and Burton. Darn it. Shouldn't have taken that money. Flynn goes back into the peripheral. And in her next meeting with Wilf, they talk briefly about Alita. Wilf mentions the riddle once again, where snow last fell in London, which makes Flynn think of a painting her mom had where there was a similar pun. Not snow, like the snow that falls from the sky. Snow like a name, a proper name. Immediately, Wilf realizes what the clue is about. Flynn realizes immediately what the clue is about. Jon Snow, who Alita apparently is a big fan of. She loves Game of Thrones. I mean, no, 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 not that Jon Snow. Jon Snow, one of the forefathers of epidemiology. And where did he die? In what house in London? Where he last fell? So they head to that address. And of course, it's exactly the place they expected to find. They find some interesting things here. First of all, this is the place where the eye surgery took place. We find some peripherals shriveled up on the ground. Wilf takes the implants from the back of their necks so they can try to trace to see who was piloting them. We also find out now that if they don't get some kind of nutrient bath, these peripherals shrivel up and die. I guess they're not alive, so I guess it's they become non-functional. And we see something very important. We saw it all the way back in episode one, that scale model of Flynn and Burton's homestead. So now we do know this is Alita's lair, or was. So she seems to be the puppet master. Another very important point. They end up in a basically an escape room looking for additional clues. 
continuing the trail of tracking down Alita, which continues this metaphor of gaming again in all of Nolan's projects. Christopher Nolan, yes, but definitely Jonathan Nolan. There seems to be a fixation with gaming. Of course, these people are gamers. But then even the mechanics of the story here is gaming, right? It's almost like a point-and-click mystery game. We have to solve a puzzle to get to the next level. And the puzzle here is important that it is a clock, almost identical or identical to the one that is in Flynn's family's house. But that clock is also stopped, but stopped at a different time. Advancing the clock to that time unlocks another door. The reason this matters is because Alita is setting clues specifically for Flynn to solve. This is why she needed a gamer. And maybe more so, this is why she specifically needed Flynn. Daniel shows up with a peripheral of his own in tow. That peripheral appears to be at least a window in which Dr. Newland can view, although I'm not sure she's piloting the body the entire time. She definitely isn't piloting it at one point. Daniel is about to use that percussion weapon on the peripheral's brain, basically disconnecting it from Flynn and, of course, making it inoperable when she turns the tables on him. He doesn't seem like he's going to talk, but he is being threatened by Flynn and Wilf, to which that damaged peripheral springs to life, pulls out a sword, and slits his throat, piloted by Newland. She did not want him to talk, even the threat of it. And she angrily says to Flynn, you have something of mine. And that leads us to the end of the episode. So where am I with all of this? In recapping it right now, I can see the shape of the story. It's still pretty straightforward, still relatively easy to follow. But my experience of watching it, it's honestly just not that compelling to watch. I think it's because the focus is so much on telling us about the world and telling us about the relationship between these characters, but still leaving them mysterious. So we're learning facts that we need to advance through the plot. It's very much like watching someone play a video game. I think Celia may have said this in the last episode, and she might be right here. It's very much like watching someone else play a game. You understand what the mission requirement is, but there's not something larger pulling you through. There's not any of these characters that I really love yet, none of the relationships that I'm really concerned about. I mean, honestly, if anybody died here other than the two central characters, and even there, I could probably lose one of them without feeling too much concern. But everybody in 2099, they could all get killed off individually or collectively, and it really wouldn't matter to me. I have no emotional connection to any of them. Maybe the mom. I mean, we didn't see the mom this week, by the way. She's just suddenly sighted and wandering around, maybe just going down to the grocery store. And people are like, oh my God, she's driving again. You can't drive. You're blind, lady. We didn't see anything about her this week. Is she at risk? Who knows? But I'm just not emotionally vested in anything that happens here. Next week, we're going to find out about the jackpot, I believe. So maybe saving the world, saving history would be compelling enough. But if we want to look at another parallel to a completely different Nolan, let's look at Tenet. Tenet is a film that is incredibly technically impressive, but completely emotionally distancing. And even something like, hey, you're going to save the entire history of the world. In the case of that film, it's a purely intellectual exercise and it doesn't have any emotional resonance. And I feel like that is pretty much where I am here. This is the tenet of TV series without the truly, at least not at this point, the truly amazing action sequences or central conceit that made tenet moment to moment absolutely thrilling to watch, even if it seems very hollow after you exit the theater. So yeah, I don't think this is better or worse than the previous episodes. There's a lot less action. This episode is still way too long. I don't know if I already said that, but these episodes should not be this long. I think by trimming them down, 
They'd be much more compelling. But I am still open to this show, and we will see. I think next week we will be halfway through. I hope that we are now pivoting away from information dump. We have set up the stakes. You know, let's say this is a heist film, basically, or a spy film with a heist inside of it. And if we can clearly lay out the shape of the story and the stakes, that then we can spend the second half of the series closing doors as a story shrinks down maybe it will become more of a thrill ride. Or minimally, they'll have time to delve into some of these large ideas. All right, so that is the recap of the episode. Let us know what you think. And next, I'm going to be telling you about the Netflix series, Cabinet of Curiosities, brought to you by Guillermo del Toro, the multiple Oscar-winning Guillermo del Toro, a very uneven anthology of short films, long short films at that, but overall rewarding, I would say. Cabinet of Curiosities is a show that I've always wanted to make. In this anthology, we gave ownership of each episode to the directors. Action! Each of the episodes has a whole world. They present you with different delights. Some are savory, some are sweet. You get a surprise from each of the bites. Second topic. Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. So this is the anthology series that del Toro has worked with multiple filmmakers to create these disconnected stories, although there are some themes that are shared. So maybe he did collaborate with brainstorming story ideas. And there seem to be some stylistic design choices that tie together some of the monsters and some of the horror that we see in these episodes and does hint at maybe a larger story that potentially could be developed over the course of this anthology if they continue to renew it year to year. I think this is going to be relatively successful based on my early read of this. They did have an interesting release pattern where they dropped two episodes per night on Tuesday through Friday. And I have seen it climb through the Netflix top 10 day over day. So I do think it worked in creating word of mouth. That being said, they're not all equally good, and maybe this is something that will be improved over time. Although I will say that every single episode has something worth recommending in some way. So since this is an anthology and these stories are completely disconnected, you honestly can sample. And I would say the best experience of this show is to sample episodes and maybe not watch the whole entire thing. The frame, by the way, is Del Toro introduces each episode in kind of a Rod Serling or Alfred Hitchcock Presents type of way. I'm sure he idolizes both of those creators. And he is a real lover of all things horror. And we get different styles of horror in this show. And I give it credit for that, for sure. And I'm going to include that in my suggestions of what you episodes you should watch. So if you can only watch one episode of this, you only have enough time to watch one episode. The absolute standout of all of these episodes, hands down, is episode number three, The Autopsy. This is based on a short story by Michael Shea. I do not know much about Michael Shea. And most importantly, I think, honestly, is that it is directed by David Pryor, who just does such an exceptional job. There was a film that came out last year called The Empty Man, which I think is available on HBO Max. Let me just double check. Oh, no longer available on HBO Max, unfortunately, but was was available to stream and I'm sure can still be rented. And it was a film that came out, I guess it came out in 2020 at the height of the pandemic, got a theatrical release. I think it did 
pretty well in theaters. And I heard heard buzz from critics that this was actually good, something you should check out. I never got around to checking it out, but now I definitely do. I think that David Pryor does such a great job across the board with this episode. I almost called it a film, and it really is like a short film. It's about an hour long. The suspense, the buildup, the teasing of the mythology, the reveals of the gruesome details of this as time goes by. And the basic framework of the story is that something very strange has happened in this coal mine. And F. Murray Abraham comes and gives a great performance, coming to perform an autopsy to help in this investigation. And the story unfolds in revealing what led up to these events. And then, of course, the night of the actual autopsy. He's there by himself. He's trying to do this autopsy on multiple victims over the course of the night. And like Sherlock Holmes or something, he's incredibly intelligent and he's figuring out what's happening. And no, no matter how outlandish the story actually turns out to be, he will follow these clues any way they go. And he starts to unravel this very creepy story. It's just very, very well done. It's like Sherlock Holmes meets Agent Scully with a definite sci-fi twist, by the way, in this episode. I don't want to tell you any more details about it. Just watch it. If you are a fan of horror, obviously. But even if not, I mean, the performances are great. The visuals are great. So if even if you have a passing interest in horror, this is really a great little horror movie. And that's episode number three, and it's called The Autopsy. If you can watch only two, I would say add to that episode three, episode number eight, in a completely different register, just showing you the, the full range of possible horror storytelling episode number eight the final episode called the murmuring directed by jennifer kent and starring se davis jennifer kent most famously directed the babadook and starring se davis and we also have andrew lincoln here from the walking dead playing her husband and this is a really interesting haunted house story very subtle horror definitely not anything over the top horrific here but it mostly has to do with this couple who are bird watchers and believe in some kind of strangely, perhaps mystical aspects to the migration patterns of birds and how it ties in with this loss they've suffered. A child has passed and they're still recovering from that loss and they're coming out to this old house and watching these migrating birds as a way to deal with that loss. And all of it culminates with this potentially haunted house. It's very moody. It's beautifully photographed. The performances are excellent and in a completely different register from the very fun and very creepy autopsy, but just another exceptional piece of filmmaking here. So if you can watch two, episode number three, the autopsy and episode number eight. All right. My recommendation, if you have some more time for, for the overall best experience, I would recommend you actually start with episode one, not a great episode directed by Guillermo Navarro, who I think is just a cinematographer for most of Guillermo del Toro's films. Beautifully photographed, great sets. This is the story of Tim Blake Nelson as this greedy lowlife who purchases people's abandoned storage lockers, and he's just a screw-up. And there's some subtext here about him being racist. It's set in 1991. By the way, all of these are period pieces. Not sure why, but it is interesting to see people working in completely different time frames. This is 1991, right at the beginning of the first Iraq war. There's a lot of loose ends in this episode. So it's really actually one of the weaker episodes in its totality. But I still would recommend you begin here because there are imagery. There is a mythology that is created in this first episode that is echoed subtly 
in multiple other episodes. So it becomes intriguing to try to imagine, hmm, how can I tie these episodes together? And you actually can. You can come up with a theory. I don't think it's very well defined, and maybe it will get enriched over time. But you can come up with a theory that does tie together almost all of these episodes. And a lot of that groundwork is laid out in this first episode. And it just ends abruptly, which is kind of okay. I was very disappointed when I first saw this first episode in that it ended so abruptly after setting up a very interesting world of this mythology that they're exploring. But once again, if you take that as just seeding ideas in your mind to look for in the other episodes, it actually enriches the overall experience. So do start with that episode one and then go into episode two with our friend Vincenzo Natalie, who we just saw last week, directing two episodes, the first two episodes of The Peripheral. And this is a story of a greedy grave robber who comes up with this story that the reason he can't pay off his debts is because the rats have been stealing the bodies right out of the grave. This seems to be a little bit of an exaggeration. But then that night, he goes to reclaim one of these bodies, and he has really like his worst possible nightmare. <laughs> the body is literally yanked out of the coffin just as he arrives there. And that leads him into this underground tunnel system where the horrors under there get worse and worse and worse. And the fact that the things just keep escalating, it adds to an almost Evil Dead-like comedy that is seated early in the episode and just gets more and more over the top. But the horror is still truly horrific. The design work is beautiful. A lot of beautiful practical effects. I mean, beautiful in their grotesqueness, but very well done across the board, by the way. The production values on almost every one of these episodes I find to be really exceptional. And we see another motif. We see greedy men. We see perhaps a shared creature mythology here in the second episode. And maybe that's the overriding theme, by the way, of greed across the board in almost every single one of these stories. Which leads us to episode three, of course, that excellent autopsy, which... As I mentioned, now in the context of the previous two stories, you start to see that maybe this fits into that same mythology. Once again, I don't want to spoil. You'll have to see these three episodes to start finding these themes in common. Now, I would say after episode one, two, and three, you have a pretty good experience. You've definitely had an enriched experience of those first three stories by watching them together. And then I would throw in, by the way, haven't called this out yet, but Guillermo del Toro loves H.P. Lovecraft imagery. And these stories have this kind of otherworldly, grotesque monstrosities in every single one of them in these first three episodes that I just outlined. And we have in episode five and six, two actual adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft stories. I hate to say this, but to get the best effect of this show, skip episode four. Skip it. This is directed by Anna Lily Amanpour, who directed A Girl Walks Home at Night. But nothing in this particular episode works. The style, by the way, is a very strong visual style, and it's consistent throughout the performances as well. But my overall feeling of this is this feels like in its style, it's a bigger budget version of those old Tales from the Dark Side. Not even Tales from the Crypt, Tales from the Dark Side, the like low budget version of Tales from the Crypt from back in the 1990s. And even the morality of the story, the point it's trying to convey is so antiquated. I just feel like I've seen this story told better a dozen times. And it does not fit in with the kind of general tone I've been describing coming off of this first three episodes. So if anything, if you really want to sample it because you liked everything else you saw, watch this kind of like as a dessert at the end. It's better to skip it in the chronology of watching the episode. So one, two, three, skip four. Then the two H.P. Lovecraft 
adaptations. I would say watch the first one, Pikmin's model, which looks great. I mean, really just beautiful production design directed by Keith Thomas, who directed the well-regarded The Vigil, but also the terrible movie Firestarter from this year, the remake. And what I would say as far as how I can do nothing but compliment the amazing directing work that David Pryor did in his episode, The Autopsy, this is the opposite. There are elements in this story that honestly could be the most horrific things we see in the entirety of this whole anthology. It's the story of how this artist is able to paint artwork that is driving people mad, basically. And I love that. I think it's a very fascinating idea. This is always a problem when you make a film along these lines where the artwork has to be truly disturbing. And that's something that is not the case in this story as it is visualized. But even the jump scares, even some of the creepy, uncanny things that happen over the course of the story. Honestly, it all should work. It just looks incredible, but it doesn't. It's just a little bit off. It just doesn't engage me. So basically, this is a missed opportunity. Could have been better, but it's definitely in the mood of those first three episodes. So you can include this one here. And then you have the next H.P. Lovecraft adaptation, Hot on its Heels, Dreams in the Witch House, directed by Catherine Hardwick. And I got to tell you, I'm an apologist. I actually like the first Twilight movie, but here's another big missed opportunity. I This is Rupert Grint from the Harry Potter films, who has to do all the heavy lifting here in this episode. And he's trying to reconnect with his lost twin and goes to some extreme lengths. And I haven't read the original H.P. Lovecraft story, or I actually think I did, but a very, very long time ago. So I don't know how faithful this is to that story, but I would say that the first half of this episode, I can almost hang in there. I'm almost there with them. I'm kind of all right, okay with it. But I got to tell you that about at the halfway point, once the plot really kicks in and you have the big final confrontation, it just gets more and more ridiculous. And it just lost me. By the end of it, I was just like, maybe my least favorite. No, I have to say that that fourth episode is probably my, my least favorite. <laughs> if you have the time, episode one, episode two, episode three, like a little sub-anthology that work really well, reinforce each other, and then throw in Pikmin's model. Not great, but a missed opportunity, but has some great elements. And then almost not associated to the rest of this Cthulhu-like H.P. Lovecraft mythology that's being fleshed out in these episodes, the ones that I've already outlined. Just throw in the murmuring, the Jennifer Kent episode, which is just a beautiful piece of filmmaking. Not really a horror movie, to be honest with you, but still an excellent film. And you should almost take it as its own individual movie. All right. One more thing I would recommend, and I know this is an acquired taste. <laughs> People are not going to like this episode, but man, I loved this episode. Perhaps just because it was so unexpected, my favorite of all these episodes, and I guarantee you most people are going to dislike this greatly, but episode number seven, you could easily fold this in with that broader mythology of episodes I mentioned before. This is the most star-studded. I mean, there's some very good performances, by the way. Eric Andre does a great job, really not in the type of role he usually performs. Peter Weller, the original Robocop, plays this villainous collector, but the real reason to watch this show is because it's directed by Panos Cosmatos. If you don't know who that is, he's the director of Mandy, the Nicolas Cage film. And if you love Mandy, then you should absolutely run, not walk, to see this seventh episode of this anthology called The Viewing. And if you're not familiar with his work, what I would describe it as is imagine those old school, the original low budget David Cronenberg movies, 
But if you watch them now, they're pretty cheesy and low budget. But imagine you saw them back in the day for the very first time and you were shocked by what you saw, but you didn't just see them. You actually dripped LSD into your eyeballs <laughs> before watching it. And the kind of psychedelic, neon-colored, bizarro mood that his films in general encompass, I really groove on it. Like I said, it's an acquired taste. But if you've watched Mandy, or if you want to see something just really, really trippy, then check this out. Because not only is it like this acid-washed, psychedelic horror, but it takes almost the entire runtime to get to the horror at all. They just sit around this group of collectors with their own biographies, just trying out the best Coke that they've ever tried, the best whiskey they've ever tasted. And it's just this kind of one indulgent experience after another, which culminates in this viewing of this object. And then, of course, things go terribly, terribly wrong. But it's just so much fun if you want to groove on something that in a class all of its own. And by the way, I love that it's included here because you have a lot of very old school set at the turn of the century, early 1900s. And now to have something set in the 70s, of course, Cosmatos loves anything that references or makes you think of the 70s. It is, with a caveat, <laughs> I would say this may be an acquired taste. But if that sounds fun to you, or if you did like Mandy, check out episode number seven as well. So once again, episode one, two, and three, that's your core three. Throw in the not great, but stylish Pikmin's model, which is very much in tone with those first three episodes. Definitely check out episode eight for the murmuring Jennifer Kent's emotional and powerful haunted house story. And if you like Mandy, or if you want to go way out there, <laughs> have a really trippy horror experience that also will make you laugh, by the way, check out the viewing as well. And you could pretty much skip episode four and six. If you loved everything you saw on that whole entire list I gave you, then sample those as well. They're not terrible. They're not like unwatchable. They're just at a much lower level of innovation or interest for me compared to the others. All right. So I do hope you enjoyed all of that. One last reminder that if you are going to watch Barbarian on HBO Max as part of your Halloween celebration, it is available right now. It is a blast, a lot of fun. It has a few ideas in its mind, but primarily it is just a really entertaining thriller that turns into a horror movie. And after you watch it, check out our episode where we spoil and discuss that movie in great detail. Our conversation was a lot of fun and track it down if you'd like to hear it. It's just about five episodes back in this same feed. I'll include a direct link to it in the show notes. Have a happy Halloween.